0: I had plenty of time to listen. After 14 years of grueling, exhausting, mind-grinding 60-hour work weeks and all-night stands, offset by the rewards and freedoms that come only to those who run their own newspapers, I had recently let the torch pass. Four months earlier, my weekly journal had been bought by an eager new owner. So in October 1988, as I sat at my desk at the Santa Fe Reporter in New Mexico's capital city, my only remaining obligation was to leave a clean office when I vacated the premises at the end of the year. Old habits die hard, however. Despite my vanished workload, most evenings still found me at my desk, tying up final details of the sale, writing letters, and musing over faded copies of the reporter from the years when it was mine to shape as best I could. Night had fallen when Frank's call came. No one else was in the building. My office window opened onto Santa Fe's marvelous autumn air. There was no pressing deadline to cut the conversation short, and I was at last out from under the eternal backlog of untended items on my desk. I leaned back in my swivel chair, ready to let Frank get it off his chest. Have you been following editor and publisher, he asked. More or less, I replied, although in truth I had not paid close attention to the newspaper industry's leading trade journal since the reporter's sale in June. It was one of the little bonuses of letting go. Have you seen what they're doing in Little Rock, Frank pressed on? Indignation sharpening his voice? Have you seen what they're doing in Detroit? Yeah, Frank, I noticed. They're giving it away in Little Rock. No paper in the country can make money selling subscriptions for 85 cents a week. Their only purpose is to drive the Democrat under. That's right. And in Detroit... I've never seen such hypocrisy. They file for a joint operating agreement with Knight Ritter's Free Press. That entire newspaper war between the news and the Free Press has been nothing but a sham. Nothing but a sham. Sure looks that way, doesn't it? Once they stake out a market, they'll stop at nothing. So what's new, Frank? It's getting worse every day in Green Bay, he said, in a voice that sounded like a moan. They're closing in on me, Dick, and I'm afraid they're going to get me. I'm afraid I won't be able to hold the News Chronicle together. Frank had talked like this before, but never until now had I heard the edge of desperation. For as long as I had known him, some six years, he had been struggling to hold his News Chronicle together, and for half a decade before we met. His situation sounded familiar, but not the tone of his voice. Frank Wood had entered my life, characteristically by telephone, one Tuesday afternoon in 1982, as I rushed to close that week's issue of The Reporter. Like every other fellow journalist who ever was just passing through town and wanted to drop by for a visit, Frank called right on my hard deadline. Look, I'd like to meet you, I said to this unknown colleague from Wisconsin, but my paper goes to the printer in six hours and I've got at least nine hours worth of work to do before it closes. Though I enjoyed the company of newspaper people, small town or big city, I had difficulty being gracious to anyone during the final stages of deadline. Each week, as the carefully laid plans for that issue unraveled before my eyes, I whipped myself into a low-level frenzy, which always somehow got the job done, but was seldom good to be around. There is no way to try to meet you today, I almost snapped at my caller. And if you're leaving town tomorrow morning... I'm afraid it just won't happen. Watching the seconds pass, I did not care if we connected or not. I needed to get back to work. I understand, came the soft reply. I'm in the business myself. Well, Agnes and I are enjoying Santa Fe. We wouldn't mind staying another day. Let us take you to lunch tomorrow when you're off the hook. It was my first exposure to Frank Wood's remarkable persistence. As we shook hands just inside Tomasito's restaurant, I was not surprised that this man looked nothing like what I had imagined. Nobody ever does. A big guy, maybe six feet three and 220 pounds, he seemed oversized for the single-brim cap he wore. Under it, his close-cut reddish hair was graying here and there. I took him to be in his early fifties, maybe ten years older than I. His wife, Agnes, was an interesting contrast. Petite where he was large, neat where he was rumpled, trim where he tended to bulge.